It's a real privilege to be back in San Antonio this last month and a half or so and to be together with, uh, with God's Word and to be able to consider what we're going to consider together this morning. Uh, the title of the message is A Church to Thank God For. That's going to be our overarching theme or idea. But let's pray to ask the Lord for help. Father, it's a joy to be one of Your children, to be able to have You as our Father. Lord, to sing what we sang, to, like a river glorious, God's perfect peace. Lord, there is an <clears throat> interior reality. There's, we read about the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But then there's a peace that's outside of us, that's objective, Lord. Uh, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, to be your children, to be able to come to you in everything. Lord, to, to sing about the end of everything. We just sang about the end of everything. And we have a preview of the end of everything for us today. Oh, Lord. Would You teach us this afternoon? Lord, guide us into truth. Guide us into Your truth and teach us, we ask You, by Your Holy Spirit, through Your Word this morning. Father, we ask You this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1 is the book we're going to be in this morning. Philippians chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 5, but we're going to focus our attention this morning on verses 3 through 5. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, a church to thank God for. As we get to verses 3 through 5, I hope you'll see why I've chosen that title. Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now, a church to thank God for. And I just want to start out sharing a couple burdens that are really driving this message, I guess, burdens that I have this morning as I've studied. And really, a couple of things I hope will happen in our lives this morning. So, the first burden is to be able to get an, a biblical understanding of what it means to have partnership or fellowship in the gospel. I know some of your translations maybe say fellowship. Uh, some say partnership and fellowship. Those are the two most common translations of this word koinonia. And so to, to get an understanding of what it means to have partnership or fellowship in the gospel so that you can be convinced that as a sender, you're not a second-class citizen in this mission, right, of uh, of, of missions, I guess, or world evangelization. Um, to see what Paul is 
to see what Paul is saying and why Paul is thanking God joyfully for the Philippians. I hope you realize I understand what he means now. And you know what? As most of us who will stay here in the church and realize we have an active part in this participation in the gospel. All around the world, the last 20 years, God has allowed this church to be actively participating in the gospel, and He still is allowing the church to actively participate in the gospel. And I hope it's going to lead you to joyful thanksgiving to God right, for this opportunity, what God has done, what God is doing right now. And even thinking about the last song is to just step back and get a bigger perspective of, of our lives. What do I mean by that? What I mean is it can seem like drudgery day in and day out. Sometimes going to work, so getting up at 4.30 a.m. and getting ready, getting lunch prepared, getting coffee, kind of half awake, making it to your car and driving to work. And this is Monday after Monday, Tuesday after Tuesday, Wednesday after Wednesday, and it can feel like you're, you're just losing perspective of, of the bigger picture of things. Or maybe the mom who's at home with children and it's the one snotty nose after another snotty nose and one sickness after another sickness. And you realize, I haven't even left the house in like three months because of all these sicknesses. And, and you don't remember that as Christians and as a local church, we're part of something bigger in this life and we just sang about it a little bit we sang about the end of all things about nations being in a certain place people from different languages and tribes singing a specific song and so you think about our bibles i want to help just locate us a little bit in in the picture of the bible specifically thinking about god's promises to abraham beginning in genesis 12 you don't have to, to turn there but Genesis 12, God is telling this man who is an idolater that the nations are going to be blessed through him and God is, God is going to dwell with his people. That's a repeated theme we see throughout the Bible. God is working in a nation and what, you, what we see very quickly is that God is a holy God and he can't dwell with sinful man. And so he provides through tabernacle, he provides through temple. And eventually, He comes in in incarnation. And so God Himself, Emmanuel, comes to dwell among His own creation. But all of this is leading to an end, and we just sang about it. It's from from Revelation 5, and we're thinking about Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, that the nations of the world are going to be blessed through the seed singular of Abraham. And Paul says, that's Jesus. So the nations are going to be blessed as their faith is in the seed Jesus Himself. We're part of this, right? And so the day in and day out, uh, I want to I help us hopefully not lose, lose sight of this big reality. And so the church, local churches, are there are brothers and sisters faithfully working, faithfully praying, faithfully attending meetings, faithfully being hospitable, faithfully giving so that the church can send out missionaries into the world, carrying this one message that's the power of God to salvation, right? So that they hear of this Christ, they believe in this Christ, and in believing in Him, the nations of the world will be blessed through Him. You have a part in that. We have a part in that reality. And so it's 
This is where I hope this is going to affect us in these ways. This is not the main point of the sermon, okay? But we're part of something bigger that God is doing in and through the church. And I think as we get, a, get an idea of what it means to have fellowship or participate in the gospel, we're going to see that reality. Yeah, some will go and some won't go. Some will be able to stay, to work, to pray, to give so that the church can sin, the church can support. And both the goers and the senders are vital and necessary in all of this, okay? So I'm going to, we should start. <laughs> That's one of my burdens that I have this morning. And to first consider our text together, Philippians 1, 3 through 5, I want us to consider this theme of a church to thank God for under four headings. So four points of the message this morning. We're going to see a personal thanks. Secondly, we're going to see the object of thanks or the one who's receiving the thanks. Third, we're going to see a joyful thanks. And then lastly, I want us to consider the motivation for thanks. Okay, so four points. Personal thanks, the object of thanks, a joyful thanks, and the motivation for thanks. Let's see the first this morning in Philippians 1, verse 3. Paul says it, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. We see Clearly from verse 3, a personal thanks, right? It's the singular, it's a singular verb, I give thanks. And Paul didn't always talk like this. There are a number of letters, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we see from our passage this morning is Paul's personal thanks. This was a man who once was persecuting Christians that he's now thanking God for. And he's doing it personally. And what we see throughout Paul's life is that this was a practice in his life. I mean, it's hard to not be challenged by Paul's life, especially in the introduction of letters where it seems like he's always praying. He's always praying for different Christians, different regions and in different cities. And so he says here that he is personally giving thanks to God for them. He did the same for the Romans in Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. The Corinthians, we know what happened in Corinth, most of us. And yet listen how Paul begins. Personally thanking God for them in 1 Corinthians 1.4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. What we see of Paul's life is that he is often personally thanking God for Christians and he personally thanks the Lord Jesus Christ for the mercy that he was shown. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, for example. And so Paul here, just to begin, a personal thanks. Paul is giving thanks to God for the Philippians. Literally, it's to feel grateful to feel thankful, to give thanks. That's how our passage begins. He was a man that was once personally seeking to harm Christians. And wonder of wonders, here he is for all of the ages until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, personally giving thanks for these Christians. That's the first thing we see this morning. A personal 
thanks. The second thing I want us to see is the object of thanks. We see it in the same verse here. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. What we see here, the object of Paul's thanks is a person, isn't it? These are, the, these are very basic things, but I've liked basic a lot. The object, the one who's receiving Paul's thanksgiving, he describes him as my God. Brothers, Christianity is not only you just have to give thanks. <laughs> you just have to be thankful. And nor is it you just have to have faith. Sometimes, I don't know if you hear people talk like that, you just have to have faith, you just have to believe. But biblically, there's an object of faith that saves. There is one that must be believed. And as we begin the letter here, we see the object of Paul's thanksgiving. He describes him as my God. And what's interesting is throughout this letter, we learn so much about this object of Paul's thanks. The first thing we could say as we consider, well, who is the object of his thanks? What do I know about him? What can I learn? Well, the first thing we see is he's Paul's God, isn't he? He's not saying, I give thanks to the God of my father and my mother and my ancestors. What we see later on is Jesus Christ is the one he was personally trusting to receive a righteousness from God. The object of thanks for Paul is not only the God of the Christians, but he's Paul's God. I give thanks to my God in all my remembrance of you. The second thing we could say and that we see really throughout the letter of Philippians is that God is the one from whom grace and peace come. That's what we see in verse 2, for example. Just the verse right above. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We just sang about this peace. This objective peace. Peace between a once offended God who is angry every day and now through faith in His Son Jesus Christ, peace. Grace and peace come from Him. We see thirdly throughout the letter, salvation is from Him in 128, for example. We see that this God, Paul's God, is the one who is at work in His people both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We see that a little bit later over in 2.13. We also see of Paul's God here, the object of thanks from 3.9, that He is the one who gives a righteousness to all who believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, to be acceptable before Him. He's the God of peace, sixth, and the one who gives peace to His people, chapter 4, verses 7 and 9. We're just observing who is this one that Paul talks about. Who is this one who is receiving His thanks? And as Christians pray, who is the one that we're praying to? He is the one who will supply the needs of those that supply the needs of Christians that have been sent. That's what we see in chapter 4. My God is able to supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And maybe a last thing we could say about the object of thanks from 420 is that He is the Father of His people 
and he is the one to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. He's the object of thanks. As Paul begins the letter to the Philippians, he was the one that Paul continually prayed to. Look back at verse, verses 3 and 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Literally, Paul says, always in all my petitions on your behalf. So the object of thanks is the one that Paul is continually praying to. He's continually giving thanks for. Thanks to, I'm sorry, for others. Brothers, in in Paul's life, we see an endurance in prayer. We see that with this language here, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. His prayer life was a prayer life that endured in personal prayer. It wasn't a one-off. It wasn't even two times a week. But throughout his letter, throughout his letters and throughout his life, he is praying for those that heard his teaching. He's praying for those that heard his preaching. And this is something vital. If we only observe the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the life of the Apostle Paul, vital in missions, vital in ministry, if I could say it like that, of not only communicating, in some ways this, this is the easy thing, to communicate um, something from the Bible. But what we see in Paul's life, in Jesus, is they prayed for those that they taught. <laughs> they prayed for those that sat under their teaching and that sat under their preaching. You see this throughout both Jesus' life and Paul's life. For example, Jesus prayed for the sanctification of His people, didn't He? And John Chapter 17, verse 17. Many of you know it. But He's praying for them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And so Paul, so Jesus is not only teaching the multitudes, He's not only having compassion on them, but He's praying for them as well. And we see the same in the life of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 1, for example, verses 15 through 17. He's praying for their wisdom, for their... For their he's, I'll just read it. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Later in chapter 3, He's praying that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so what we see in Paul, not only his personal thanks, not only the object of thanks, but he he was enduring in his life of prayer, wasn't he? And he was praying for those that he had once been among, the Philippians. He labored in prayer for them. He's praying in different places for these Christians that he had been able to meet. So as even as we think, I know some have desire for mission, some have desire for ministry. We heard even a couple, was it last week, deacons? 
thinking about this reality, not only communicating the truth of the Bible, but praying for those that are hearing our teaching, praying for those that sit under the preaching of the Word of God. And we see that in Paul's life here. Brothers, let me just encourage you, if you don't have a practice of that, ask the Lord to help you. Prioritize your life to be one who makes time to pray specifically for those that hear your teaching. Because we're talking about things supernatural, aren't we? I mean, Paul, Jesus doesn't think it's too small to pray for the sanctification of His people. The sanctification is going to come by His truth and God's Word is truth. And Paul praying for wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. And so it has to do with knowing God's very character. He prays for regarding God's will at times. And so brothers, make it a purpose and a point in your lives to pray for those that you teach. Pray for those that hear your preaching. That's the second thing we see from this introduction to Philippians. A personal thanks, the object of thanks. But the third thing we see from these opening words is a joyful thanks, don't we? We see it in verse 4. Paul says, Always in every prayer for you all, making my prayer with joy. What's amazing is, I mean, this often was a, the flavor of Paul's praying, wasn't it? With joy. And if you study this book of Philippians, you see Paul uses this word throughout the verb form. Rejoice always. So he's giving commands in chapter 3, verse 1. But joy is found throughout this letter to the Philippians. And what's amazing about biblical joy is that it does not depend upon our physical circumstances. This is something happening within us within the people of God that doesn't depend upon our physical circumstances or our physical comfort. We see it clearly from the context of the letter. Where is Paul writing this letter from? Who knows? Yeah, where does it say that? The same chapter, verses 12 and 13. Look there. Thinking about this joy, so it's a joyful thanks. And what I'm saying is biblical joy, it is not depend upon our physical circumstances. You could think about a, a non-ideal situation or non-ideal environment you might think of prison. Paul says in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so in the midst of a Roman prison, Paul is able to joyfully thank his God as he remembered the Philippians. And what's amazing is we see a, a, similar, a similar context if we remember Paul's first missionary trip to Philippi, right? Remember that? Acts chapter 16. Listen to what Paul was doing his first recorded trip to Philippi. Acts 16, verse 25, about, mid, about midnight, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And we begin to see some more of the beginnings of the church in Philippi. 
So this joy that Paul mentions here, this joyful, thankful praying is not a joy. It's not this, this happiness, but it's more than that. It's not dependent upon our physical situation. It's not dependent upon our physical comfort or not. Paul is joyfully thanking God as he continually makes petitions for the Philippians. He says again in 4, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This verb, this word, I'm sorry, this word prayer we see two times in the ESV. It's the same word and and it has the idea of, of a supplication or request. So Paul's joyfully thanking God. He's continually, always uh, making petitions with joy to God for the Philippians. It's the same word we see a little bit later on in chapter 1, verse 19, talking about the Philippians. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And that well-known verse in Chapter 4, verse 6, we see the same word here that we see two times in verse 4. Do not be anxious about what? But in everything. Those contrasts, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication or petition. That's our word. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And Paul does this with Joy. It's approximately 14 times we see this, some form of this word joy throughout this letter to the Philippians. And one commentator said this His prayer is thankful, his thankfulness is prayerful. And then, having so much to be thankful for, his prayers become also joyful. That's what we see here in verses 3. In four of Philippians 1. So his physical location did not affect his joy. And this joy that he talks about is rooted, and this is what we begin to see throughout the, the context of the letter, is that this joy is rooted in something deeper than his physical location. It's rooted in something deeper than his physical comfort. It's rooted in a reality outside of him. And what is that reality in this particular context? We see it in verse 5. It's in the participation of the Philippians in the Gospel with Paul. So there's something happening outside of Paul that his joy is rooted in that. Those are the roots that are dug down in that reality of their, their koinonia with Paul in the Gospel. And that is how he's able to be joyful even as he's sitting in a Roman prison. We see that reality throughout the letter of Philippians. It's a joy rooted in this reality outside of themselves and what the Philippians were doing with him in the gospel. And so his personal thankfulness to God, God is the object of his thanks. And we see that his thanksgiving is joyful. Lastly, let's consider the fuel for thanksgiving. I mean, just just thinking about that, what could fuel that sort of praying? <laughs> Being in prison. It's not like the it's not, I've never been in a, I've never been because I've been I've done a crime in a prison here. 
But I've heard a lot of ways the, the government provides for those in prison and jail. This, is, this wasn't like that. It's more like Guayaquil, Ecuador. It's, you don't want to be in those places. You don't want to be in prisons like that. What, what is responsible for a joyful thanksgiving like this to God? What's the fuel? What's motivating Paul's joyful thanksgiving? That's what I want to think about right now. The fuel for thanksgiving. I want us to look at two words from this passage. As we're thinking about this, what was, what was the fuel that was motivating this kind of praying? The first word is the word remembrance, and the second word is the word partnership. You see the word remembrance, at least in your ESV, or all my remembering. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul's recollecting the Philippians, right? His intentional thinking about the Philippians motivates him and leads him to joyfully give thanks to God for them. Do you see it? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So Paul intentionally remembering them. And we can maybe just imagine how this would be. Paul is in prison and he is setting, he has time to pray. And he's, he's reflecting on the Philippians themselves. He knows that yeah, his first trip to Philippi was not planned. He was prohibited by the Lord from going into Asia to preach the word. Remember that in Acts 16? And then he has a vision of a man. He says, come over and help us. And so they conclude that they should go to Macedonia and preach the gospel to him. And so he arrives in Philippi and we see the beginning, we see one of the, 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 the first founding member of the church in Philippi, don't we? What's her name? Does anybody remember her name? Her name's Lydia, isn't it? There was a prayer meeting at the side of the river. And so Paul is there and he's talking with them and God opens her heart and she receives what she receives the word. She receives what Paul is communicating verbally to those there at the river. We fast forward a little bit. Things don't get better. Physically speaking, things get worse. But Paul's remembering this. He's thinking about Lydia, this cosmopolitan woman, and she's there, not from her original hometown. And God not only adds her to the church, but her household. That's what we read. And so maybe he's thinking about their faces. And so a little bit later on, Paul's mistreated. Paul's thrown into prison. And pretty soon, it's what I just read in Acts 16, verse 25. He and Silas uh, supernaturally are praying and singing hymns to God. And then there's an earthquake. And the doors are opened and... The jailer assumes everybody has left and he's going to kill himself. That would be the better way to go. But Paul yells out and he says, we're all here. And so a light rushes in and it's one of those most important questions in all of life. What must I do to be saved? And Paul explains the word to him after he says, uh, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. This probably a brute of a man eventually takes Paul and Silas and they're cleaning their wounds and he's explaining the word to them and, and the household 
is added to the church. And so maybe Paul is just thinking about this. I mean, we, could, we can imagine he has faces in his mind as he's remembering the Philippians. And to remember their immediate love for him, didn't they? There was immediate hospitality, wasn't there? Lydia has him in. The jailer has him in. They're eventually released from prison. And it's like Lydia wins them again. And they're back in Lydia's house. And so Paul is remembering them. And all of this leads him to joyfully thank God for them. I don't know if you have that practice in your own personal life of praying, but I would encourage that practice to you. Taking time to intentionally remember brothers and sisters. If you, if you find prayer hard, I find praying hard sometimes. Harder than at other times. And this practice that I've observed in Paul's life, I found to be a helpful practice. Taking time, I have I pray for, you know, the Snyders on a certain day, and I pray for their family, and I just begin to think through, what do I know about this brother? I know he's had a lot of sicknesses. I know that he had a well-paying, I mean, well-paying in the United States. They start thinking through things I've heard about his testimony and the ways that God has used him and is using him even in his weakness to be translating this catechism and now the gospel of Luke. And you just start thinking about these things and a natural overflow of that sort of intentional remembering is joyful thanksgiving. And so I encourage you, if you don't have that practice, adopt that practice. It could be helpful for some lubrication and just that beginning to, that beginning to pray thanking God, this vital aspect of our prayer lives as well. Not only asking, yes, we can ask, but we don't want to forget to thank God for what He has done. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Isn't that what we hear? That's right. And so Paul is intentionally remembering the Philippians. And I think that is part of the fuel that leads him, what motivates him to joyfully give thanks to God for the Philippians. But a second thing, a second word I want us to look at is the word partnership. We see it in verse 5. So we're, we're still thinking the fuel for thanks, the fuel for thanksgiving, his intentional remembering. But secondly, this partnership. Look at 1.5. Let me read 1.4 so you get a little bit of a feel of the flow. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word because is a word that connects verses 4 and 5. And we, see the, and we see the reason for his because. Because of your partnership. Because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the word koinonia. Some of you probably have heard it. It's a word that Paul uses three other times Throughout the book of Philippians in 2 1, 3 10, we see the verb form over in chapter 4, verse 15. It's the same word that Luke used to describe the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Brothers, this word describes an intimate relationship. This is the idea of the word. It's an intimate relationship. It's literally, it's to enter into fellowship, 
join oneself as an associate or make oneself a share or partner such that this is the such that is the real important part here such that you make another's necessities your own as you seek to relieve them that's what the philippians did with paul they sought to make paul's necessities their own as they worked to help relieve Paul's necessities. That's the idea here of partnership or fellowship. Paul says it in 4.15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership. It's our same word. Entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. So it's this participation that Paul remembered as he's praying for the Philippians. It was the Philippians' participation in the Gospel that was fuel for the Apostle joyfully giving thanks to God for them. Because of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. If we only think about this fellowship this partnership, I mean, it would lead us to, to joyful thanksgiving as well. And I hope to bring it to us and, and to get us to think about what God has allowed this church, how God has allowed this church to participate in the gospel the last 20 or so years. Right? Considering this reality of, of partnership or fellowship, specifically between Paul and the Philippians, don't we see that? This partnership was a supernatural partnership. Right? I mean, this is not natural. You think about the two founding, we don't even know the jailer's name actually. And if the demon possessed girl was converted, we're not sure. Luke doesn't say. Lydia, I think of a mix of like Paris, Los Angeles, and New York. Right? And so some sort of flavor like that cosmopolitan, lady, fabrics. That doesn't really appeal to fabrics, okay? Like, that seems weird to us. Not in that time, and purple's even more fancy. Um, and so you have kind of this cosmopolitan woman, and then you have this guy who's a jailer. And probably a brute of a man. If we read Luke's account in Acts 16, we see, I mean, he, he was in charge of fi- like some physical gruffness and physical uh, abuse of the prisoners. And you have these two people now in the same church, praying for Paul, participating with Paul in the gospel. That's supernatural. I mean, it's probably these two people who by nature weren't going to spend time in the same room. Maybe the same market by accident. And what do you have in the life of the church? I mean, if we just begin to naturally think about our own lives. If you just look around, I mean, most of us would not be sitting in this room let alone on a Sunday morning, desiring to hear one person stand up with an open Bible and talk to you about the Bible. We wouldn't throughout the week be spending time with each other in this room. That's supernatural. And to be able to then think about something bigger than ourselves and to participate such that this church has been a church that is financially given, has sent people to encourage, has sent out missionaries, that's supernatural. That's a supernatural fellowship. That's exactly what we see here of the Philippians. 
It's a supernatural fellowship. The second thing we see is that it was ongoing. It wasn't just a one-off, was it? If we see the language here in one five, Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If you read the commentators, they say Paul perhaps wrote Philippians 10 years after his initial trip to Philippi. His initial recorded trip to Philippi. And so if that's the case, Paul says from the first day, he says over in chapter 4, after he left Macedonia, they were the only church that supported him. So from the first day until now, 10 years, that's a long time, isn't it? They had given to Paul's needs more than one time. It was an ongoing partnership that the Philippians had with the Apostle Paul. I think it's no less supernatural, (laughs) this ongoing partnership with the Apostle. And one of the last things we see as we're thinking about this partnership is that it was financial or material. Paul talks this way throughout the letter. He says, for example, in 4.16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul uses this word, the word we see in 4.16 for needs, three other times in the book of Philippians. And if we look at how the word's used in other places, Acts 2.45, for example, the church is sharing together. Ephesians chapter 4, we correctly understand the word to refer to financial or material needs. That's how the church supernaturally, enduringly participated with Paul in the gospel. This, this material, financial way. And so we see that he, he primarily, as he's joyfully thanking God for the Philippians here in Philippians 1, he primarily means that they made Paul's needs their own needs. And they worked to elim- alleviate those needs practically. And we see that in the letter. They had sent Epaphroditus from Philippi. It was a risky trip. He gets sick. He almost dies. Paul sends him back. They were seeking to make Paul's needs their very own needs in very tangible and practical ways and in material ways. And brothers, I want us to to see this is that from what I can tell in the New Testament, the Philippians, they didn't leave Philippi. They sent Epaphroditus, didn't they? He's called an apostle actually. In, in chapter 2, he's a sent one from the Philippians, but Paul sent him right back. And so he goes back to Philippi. And what we see is they didn't leave Philippi and they are faithfully, enduringly participating with Paul in the gospel. From the first day until now, Paul says, maybe 10 years of participation. This was what fueled Paul's joyful thanksgiving. And so we've seen from from these three verses, a personal thanks, the object of thanks, a joyful thanks, and the fuel for thanks. And I want us to think just about three things in light of this as as we're going to begin to kind of finish our time. The first thing is, is a more personal application. So Paul here is writing to thank God for the Philippians. He's writing them, they're reading as he's saying, This is how I pray for you. I thank God for you. They've supported him. 
They've partnered with him from the first day until now. And I just feel like it would be appropriate on a personal level, on, on my behalf and my family's behalf, to thank you for your partnership with us the last three years being in, being in Ecuador. Um, it has been a huge encouragement to us those that have written, those that have visited, those that have prayed and continue to pray for us, financially giving to us. We thank God for you, <laughs> like Paul did here. Thank you very much for praying for us. Thank you for giving to us in these ways. Please don't stop, if anything. And it's not... It's not cliche. If please continue to pray for us, please pray for those the Wilkinson family. Please, please pray for Evan. I mean, the church there in Kathmandu. Don't forget praying for those in Manta, Ecuador. Pray that the church would be characterized by these things I just read earlier in Acts two forty two. The, the the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. God would raise up uh, a pastor. God would raise up pastors in these churches. So thank you, just on a personal level, for your support, your participation, making our needs your own needs, and working in practical ways to alleviate those needs in, in, in your own lives. The second thing I want us to consider after having looked at verses 3 through 5 is this. We see now what it means to have partnership in the gospel. He primarily is talking about this koinonia in the gospel is this reality of of financially, materially supporting him as he is taking the gospel to other places in the world. This is primarily what he has in mind. We see in the letter that, that they prayed for him also. And he's actually convinced by their prayers in the spirit of Jesus Christ that he's going to be released. He's going to be able to return and see them. But this, this participation, this fellowship has this flavor of material, financial. We see in Paul's words, the Philippians really had fellowship in the gospel with Paul. What do I mean by that? I want to emphasize this and it's so obvious. He really, he doesn't thank God for something hypothetical in these verses, does he? Like you guys might one day really have fellowship with us once you actually leave Philippi and come to the mission field. That's not how he's talking, is he? He, before God, is thanking God joyfully for them, for their participation in the gospel. These Philippians who, apart from Epaphroditus, they, had ne- they did not leave Philippi. And yet Paul says they clearly participated with him in the gospel. I think this should cause us to think about this this necessity of both the senders and the sent in this gospel work. And I mean, I don't want you to see that, like miss this big thing, this big way Paul is thanking God for the Philippians, for their partnership. It doesn't seem like they left Philippi, and yet they really participated with him in the gospel. They stayed, they prayed for him, they gave. There is a necessity, this necessity in missions for both those that stay and those that go, those who send and those who are sent. 
Brothers, those who, those who sinned are not in any way second-class Christians. I don't know if you've ever been tempted that way. There, you know, the, the, well, we're hearing these reports from others and we're hearing these reports from, from around the world and the needs around the world and, and people are sent from the church and you think, well, I'm just, just me. I just stay. Well, no, don't just think I just stay. Your role is vital and necessary. And I think this is exactly what Paul recognizes in the Philippians. He's continually thanking God for them for their real participation in the gospel. Yes, he left. They stayed. They continued to support him and have a relationship with him. I think the implications of this are huge. And those who stay, recognizing and even being excited until you are led to the point where you thank God that you're able to stay. That you're able to remain here in San Antonio. You're able to, God provides a job to work. And to be able to have part of this fellowship, to pray for this church, to pray for those that the church has sent and that the church supports, and to give so that that can continue to happen. We live in a real world with real expenses. And to think about the excitement of it, to, to thank God. So think about our own families. I mean, the example for our children. Most, I'm going to venture, won't be sent out of this local church as a church planner. Or maybe to go, to go to a place where there's a group of Christians to help set things in order like Titus did. What example are you leaving in the context of your family? I mean, there's, there's this exciting reality that I know some of you, and it's so encouraging, I'm not like this, but are, you have this ability to think about job possibilities and create jobs. Some of you, I just saw the email sent out yesterday. One of the brothers, his job is hiring, and so what's he do? I want to share it with others in case they need a job. But this, this opportunity to create jobs, maybe you're in, in, a, in a, a manager, you're in a position of authority at work so that you're responsible for hiring and bringing on new employees. You can do that, support that in the context of the church, creating, creating jobs, helping your kids realize, hey, think about this, my son, let me teach you this. Why, dad? Why should we do that? Not just so you can get so much money and keep it all for yourself, so that you can stay so that you can be a faithful part of the church, so that you can be an example to your children of what it means for a man to work, to support his family, to give to the church, so that the church can send missionaries, so that the church can support missionaries. That's glorious. That's a big thing. And that, according to Paul's words, is it's really participating in the gospel. That's not second-class Christianity. That's not less, I don't know, that's not less spiritual, that's not less whatever. He says that's actually, that's really participating in the gospel. You really are participating in the gospel with me. Think about this. Sisters, how to involve your children in this reality. You know, as your kids get older, and they, maybe they're able to work around the house, so they start working themselves. You start talking to them about, hey, son, consider this way to use your money. Consider ultimately who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. You start talking about how they can be involved in these ways of praying for the church, 
praying for those that are sent, but giving as well. Why, Daddy? Why, Mommy? Because we're part of something so much bigger than only what our eyeballs see here in San Antonio. God is doing something. History is linear. We're moving to an intended end, aren't we? And so in the context of our families to son, it's a good thing to want to work and provide for your family and to work and to give and to be a faithful member in the life of the church. Among many other reasons, you can participate in the gospel, my son. We have this opportunity in the context of our families to, to model that for our children, to encourage our children that way. I think recognizing that both those who stay and those who go are really participating in the gospel. Not only those who go. And this is something that has been is recognized by, I've got a handful of quotes here. I, probably, I don't think I'm going to read all of them. But has been recognized not only in Scripture, but outside of Scripture. I mean, the necessity and, and maybe carries the, his contemporaries, you see with Heart Cry Missionary Society, they've adopted this language of those who hold the rope and those who go down in the well, right? I mean, when our brother Paul Snyder was here six months ago, eight months ago, if you remember, he began his message and he said, I want you to understand that the hero is not the missionary. We know that Christ is the hero of the story, but I also want you to know who the hero is, earthly speaking. That's the sending church. And he continued on. I mean, our brother recognizes this. James read a quote, I think, uh, two weeks ago. If I remember, that, that the heat's on. Was it two weeks ago? From Hudson Taylor. And at the end of that quote, Hudson Taylor said this, those who remain at home and labor to send and sustain those that go are as really employed in the work and do as really obey the Savior's command as those who go in their own persons. This, re- this recognition of these two... Ne- ne- I can't even speak. Sometimes I think in Spanish as I'm speaking in English. Uh, son necesitados. Right? They're both needed. And they're both really participating in the gospel. Paul recognizes this. He he thanks God for it. You see missionaries throughout history recognizing the same thing. And so I hope that understanding the words of Paul this morning, seeing what it means to have partnership in the gospel and that they really had partnership in the gospel, he joyfully gives thanks to them. That would lead us to think through the amazing ways that God has allowed this church the last 20 years to participate in the gospel. It's amazing. I mean, some of you moved here because of the uniqueness of this local church. Among other things, one of it is the evangelism, uh, the kind of an evangelistic, intentional, evangelistic fervency, prayerfulness, and missions-mindedness. What God has done in and through the church and is continuing to do these last 20 years is astounding. To recognize that your part here in San Antonio is a vital part in the participation of the gospel. And then lastly, 
we have thought about what Paul thanks God for, how Paul really thanks God for them, right? In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. I just want to ask you, as we consider Paul's personal thanks, would you give thanks to God for a church like the Philippians in your own prayer life? Would you, before God, joyfully give thanks to God for a church like the Philippians? I want to unpack that a little bit. My present understanding is they never sent a missionary. Not from the Bible, at least. Maybe some of you immediately would begin to think, well, that is compromise. This is really what I want to kind of get at a little bit. Could you thank God for the same church that Paul thanks God for? This church, everything I could tell from the New Testament, they never sent a missionary. They never sent someone to plant a church they never sent someone like Titus to set things in order, a bunch, of, a bunch of groups of believers in an island. Could you genuinely thank God for a church like that? I think this is really what you're missing in your life if you can't. <laughs> Paul could do that. Paul could thank God for a church like the Philippians that had participated with him for maybe 10 plus years in the gospel. They sent Epaphroditus, yes, Paul sent them back. He genuinely thanks God for them. Now, am I saying you shouldn't send, the church shouldn't send missionaries? No. All I'm asking is, could you thank God for the Philippians like Paul thanked God for the Philippians? You'll notice that Paul doesn't correct them either. He, he does correct two women at the end in chapter 4. But it, does, but it wasn't, well, you guys haven't sent out 10 missionaries in these last 10 years. What's wrong with you? He doesn't. I mean, he's, he doesn't correct them there. He doesn't correct them for not sending out church planters. He doesn't correct them for not sending out enough missionaries in the years that he's known them. He is able to joyfully thank God for them as he remembers them and specifically for their participation in the gospel. Can you and I do the same in our own lives, in our own personal praying? Brother, and maybe sister, I've just, maybe more so in brothers, do please be careful, maybe that's what I want to say it like this, of not imposing upon other Christians church leadership, the local church, a standard that is extra biblical. What do I mean by that? The church didn't send out X amount of missionaries this year. Therefore, you know, equals compromise. Or this is what I've seen. You don't open air preach. Therefore, you don't faithfully evangelize. Where does my Bible say that? It doesn't say that. What happens though I think open-air preaching is fine. I think a church should send out missionaries. What happens, though, is that that extra-biblical standard can be voiced, and then that burden, that standard can be put upon other Christians such that their consciences are affected. That's what happens. That's why it's serious 
because consciences are affected by extra biblical standards. And secondly, you're not able to thank God for things that Paul could thank God for. We don't want to do that in any area of life. Parenting, work, I mean, interpersonal relationships, whatever it may be. And so these three verses this morning, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. A personal thanks. We've seen the object of thanks. The one is receiving Paul's thanksgiving, his joyful thanks, and lastly, the fuel for Paul's thankfulness. I hope in the end, this lead, can lead all of us, uh, those that are in Christ, to joyful thanksgiving to God for what He has done, has allowed, and is doing in the life of this church. And individual, on the individual level, it's amazing of the, the evangelistic opportunities that are happening in the church. Well, let's pray together to finish our time. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for being able to participate in the gospel. This reality of fellowship, this reality of intimate relationship, Lord, of making the burdens of others our own while working to alleviate those very burdens, Lord. I praise you, Father, for what you've done in the life of the church here over these last 20 plus years. Lord, personally having been, received that, Lord, Lord, help us to persevere in this. Help us to not grow cold by any means, Lord. Lord, not to grow lax in praying, not to grow lax in giving, not to grow lax in, in sending, Lord, not to grow lax in evangelism in all these ways, and not to grow lax, Lord, in joyful thanksgiving to You for what You've done and what You've supernaturally allowed us to be a part of. I thank You, Father, through Your Son, Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust that has brought us to Yourself. Amen.